Welcome back to this one podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Bailey. Uh, thank you for opening like that every time. The I'm Bailey. Did I did I do it right this time? I don't know. You just started doing it randomly. How was I initially doing it? And I'm Bailey. Is that not how I did it this time? No, because you go, and I'm Bailey. Like we're in a children's cartoon. Awesome. This is the introduction to a kid show is basically what you're doing. Like, oh, I'm Bailey, and I'm excited to be here today. Today on Two Idiots, One Podcast, we're going to be talking about a movie. Can you say movie? Well, our program has previously been compared to a children's cartoon, specifically a PBS program because of our intro, outro, and transition music. No way. I, I promise you. Somebody has really said that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was one of our uh, TikTok or Instagram messages. That was comparing us to a PBS. Yeah, that our intro music sounds like a PBS show. I like our intro music. No, I think it's great. I think so, too. I don't think it's PBS worthy at all. PBS worthy? I think it's better than PBS. Yeah, that's why it's not PBS worthy. Oh. Because if it was PBS... Uh, I might have said that wrong. Words are important, kids. That's what we're talking about today is words. And how words going together make bigger words like tomahawk or bone no that's one word tomahawk what is tama it is tom a hawk oh okay. so it's three words bone is one word okay yeah that's a compound word or what whatever that's called it's been a while i don't think that's at all how that works if there are any english majors out there Compound words are multiple words put together. Tom A. Hawk. Okay. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what it would mean to tomahawk. I'm pretty sure it's like a chopping tool. No, no. Have, no. If you tommed a hawk. Oh, I'm pretty sure that's when your hawk is in its nest and it's like getting ready for its work day and you're watching it from another tree with binoculars. Oh, that would make more sense now. So that's where the word comes from. Okay. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but... The only thing that I do know is that we're talking about the 2015 film Bone Tomahawk today. Written and directed by S. Craig Zalar. And this one's going to be a little bit different for the cast because we have some famous people. Like, this is actually a really stellar cast. And it is. But Ben Stellar's not in it. Ben St- <laughs> We have Kurt Russell playing Sheriff Hutt. Richard Jenkins, who was in the one movie that we did, Let Me In. Yeah. As... Chicory. Once again, not Leroy Jenkins. Not Leroy Jenkins. Clarence, which is Fred Blomd. I'm probably butchering his last name, but he is the dad in New Girl. He's been in a lot of things. I recognize him. I like him a lot. Patrick Wilson from the Conjuring universe. I was going to say Watchmen, but that works too. (laughs) I think more people know him from the Conjuring than Watchmen. Yeah. Lily Simmons playing uh, Samantha O'Dwyer. She's been in a lot of stuff. David Arquette. Scream. Also, the Query. So many things. Sid Haig. So many things. Devil's Rejects. Matthew Fox. Isn't he the guy from, from Back to the Future? <laughs> and that's a wrap. We're done with this. Um, don't even want to do the rest of the podcast. We're done. That's it. Bone Tomahawk Review. Go watch it. Nice. No, I was just joking. I was talking about Michael. Michael J. Fox? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But no, it's got a very, very stellar cast with Kurt Russell being the one that headed everything. And here's your fun little interesting fact real quick. Kurt Russell 
was actually a huge fan of Craig Zoller. Stephen Craig Zoller, if you're wondering what the S stands for. I'm just going to call him Zoller. He had written, he writes books, right? So the whole reason Kurt Russell signed on to this was because he was a huge fan. And that's why we have all these other people. But it used to be a little bit different because Peter Skarsgård was supposed to play O'Dwyer, which would have been Patrick Wilson. Timothy Oliphant was supposed to play Bruder, which went to, as you refer to him as, Michael J. Fox. (laughs) Matthew. Matthew Fox. And Samantha was supposed to be played by Jennifer Carpenter, who would go on to star in another movie that... Zoller did. He's only done like three, but this was his directorial debut. And the reason for that was because when they signed on to it, it was like 2007. So there was a huge eight-year gap. And obviously people have commitments and stuff like that. Because if you'll notice, one of the interesting things is that Kurt Russell has the exact same beard as he does in Hateful Eight. Because it was filmed about this time. But Kurt Russell wanted to make this work. And that's why our stars basically shifted which i don't think was a issue it's still a stellar cast yeah no i think that the cast they ended up going with did really really well yeah so i'm not i'm not upset by that i just thought that it was kind of interesting because it was in production for so long and wanting to be a concept in 2007 and then didn't get made until 2015 so you know more about film than i do you know more about the history how they're made how production works how pre-production works and everything like that wouldn't go that far, but generally speaking. But I know that with video games specifically, if they go through a lot of different production teams or if they're in production for an excessively long period of time and main actors in them change, not necessarily actors in the same sense, but like, you know, if the lead quest design leaves, it means the the quests in the game are going to be less likely to be super dope because they weren't all designed by with the same idea in mind. Do you think that that holds true for movies as well? That if they're in production for too long and have too many different hands in them, that it could damage the final product? I don't think this is an example of that because I like this movie a lot, but just in general. Yeah, and the main one that I'll go to is Zack Schneider with Justice League. If you take his version and then the one that shall not be named, that happened afterwards totally different movies because the way that people view their movie the way that they see their art is interpreted completely differently by somebody else which is why i like that he wrote and directed this so that way you could see exactly what he was going for because he knows this is what i had in mind at that time i think that the cast being played by different people the original cast would have done great i like all the original people i like the new people doesn't matter I think in the event of something like the Dark Knight with Heath Ledger passing away in the middle of it and having to shift over from the Joker to Two-Face was not the best thing in the world because obviously it was under different circumstances, but I think that would kind of be a little bit of a thing. It would even be um, relating it back to superhero movies when... Edward Norton was the Incredible Hulk, and then they recast him as Mark Ruffalo. Two totally different ways. But no, like it's two totally different ways of playing the exact same character. Because the Incredible Hulk from 2008 is canon in the MCU. 
but Edward Norton and Mark Ruffalo play the parts completely different. It's really interesting that you bring that up because Mark Ruffalo released a statement like a week ago at Comic-Con about the transition from him or from Norton to him in the Hulk series. Because I guess Mark Ruffalo and Edward Norton are friends. And he was under the impression that Edward Norton would be upset, but Edward Norton was actually like, oh, no, dude, I don't care. You're fine. Which is cool, like, because that doesn't really happen. Yeah. But anyway, let's get back to the topic. I got a little sidetracked with that one. Yeah, that was a little... (laughs) It was okay. It was fun. A little detour. A little detour. On a scale from one to five, what are you going to give it? I think I'm going to give this movie a four. And the reason it's not higher is because, to me, the ending was a little weak. But the acting was awesome. The cinematography was cool. Like, all the shots were cool, especially in the mountains and during the hero's journey. Like, just a lot of the shots were really cool. The dialogue was interesting and fun and made me laugh at times and made me sneer at times. What about you? I'm right there with you. I think a four for different reasons. My reasoning is I believe some things could have been cut and it would have been a little bit shorter. I think in parts it kind of drags on a little bit longer than it should. And and there's nothing wrong with that, but I feel that there's a slow pace to it, and that's why it's not higher. I mean, it's, it's still a four. It's still a great movie that I've watched it three times. This was my third time watching it. I'll still recommend it to people, and I think the first time you watch it is probably the best. You'll never get that again, which we'll talk about in the spoiler section. So you mentioned pacing And that's one thing I will give credit to this movie for. I thought it was paced extremely well, especially for it being over two hours long. Because typically, if there's a movie that long that I'm watching, I get bored at incremental parts. Like, usually 30, 45 minutes in will be the first time that I pause the movie to, like, go pee or check Facebook or something. But I watched this movie in one sitting. I was super engaged the whole time. I didn't feel bored during it at all. Maybe that's because I've seen it. Very possible. Which I know on my first viewing, I I didn't feel that way. I think subsequent viewings make me go, well, that probably could have been trimmed a little bit, could have cut down. We probably would have been around an hour 50, and the movie would have been fleshed out still. But I digress on that one. Absolutely. No problem. What do you think Roger Ebert gave it? Uh probably on their scale of 3.5 or a 3. I don't know because they didn't review it, but I would say probably. <laughs> and the reason is because like much like with Magic Magic, this was a little indie film. Even though it had a huge stellar cast, uh, depending on what you read, the budget was either like $1.8 million or $2 million, and that was it. Which is exceptionally low. For the star-studded cast that is in that, yeah. And I I get why, because directorial debut, it's a great movie, don't get me wrong, and I think that it's stellar, and I wish that he would do more, but I can see the budget being low. But we'll talk about why the budget was low here in a minute, because there there are actual reasons for it, but I want to get into spoilers before we talk about that. Okay. So with that being said, how would you summarize this movie? From a first-time viewer standpoint, what would you summarize it? I would say that a lawful neutral sheriff and his party go on an adventure to rescue the princess. 
who was kidnapped by the big bad. And on this journey, they learn more about themselves and what they're willing to go through to do what they perceive as the right thing or to get vengeance, you know, whatever their motivations are. And it's about the human condition. That was very thought out. I enjoyed that one. I would say if I had to do a five-sentence summary on it, it would be somewhere in the ballpark of savages. Is savages a sentence? No, just, well, yeah, it's just one. Okay. Just okay. The, the savage, or no, I'm going to say troglodytes. I think troglodytes would be better. I would say troglodytes, my wife. My wife. Ow. That hurts. Wishbone. <laughs> we can leave. I would say that's, that's the whole movie. Yeah. In five sentences. And if that did not make sense to you. It's because you haven't seen the movie. It's because you haven't seen the movie. And if that did make sense to you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. But with that being said, do you want to jump into the spoilers? Yeah, roll that spoiler music. Sick. So I want to do this a little bit differently because I think that this movie is essentially two movies put into one. I think the first half of the movie is extremely different than the second half of the movie. Would you agree with that one? I don't know if it's as specific as halves, but I could definitely see two different films being in this movie. Well, because the the tonal shift just flips from what it was to what it is. And I think that we need to talk about them like the first part and then talk about the second part because I feel like fundamentally they're the same thing, but they're different. Okay, so for me, the tonal shift happens right after they find out that they're going to have to take Patrick Wilson's leg or he's not going to be able to continue. Yeah, that's that's about where I would do it because I, I think the tonal shift is when they get captured, which is which is around that time. It's less than 10 minutes later. Right. So we're we're about at the same part where we say this is when they split off. So the first half of the movie, what did you like about it? The dialogue. The and dialogue's great. The dialogue and not necessarily character building, but basically character building. Because every character, you know, they make quips and they have these little jokes and they're subservient and their hierarchy is explored. And it's just really interesting from from someone in 2023 watching this movie that's supposed to be set in, I would imagine, the 1890s. You know, that's really good because it doesn't actually say. The only date I remember it ever giving is is when Chicory is going to his brother's grave. Or I don't know that it's his brother, his wife's grave. Yeah, it's his wife's grave. And she died in 1980 or 1891. So because I imagine it was recent that his wife passed away, I would imagine it's the 1890s. Okay, so we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll say for the sake of it. The 1890s. So we're we're getting into the early 1900s. If you've ever played Red Dead Redemption 2, it takes place about the same time. Yeah. So to me, the reason this is so interesting in the first half is because of the dialogue. Specifically, when like Samantha was talking to Patrick Wilson about his leg. Like, oh, it's your tibia that's injured. And knowing specifically like that bone. Because to me, that's like... That shows a knowledge I wouldn't expect from people of that era. And the 
dialogue makes them seem like intelligent and thoughtful and it changes the hierarchy from what I expected it to be because Chicory is called old man the whole time. And I would imagine back then folks having more respect for their elders. So to me, it was just interesting because they weren't the stereotypical characters that I would expect from a movie set in this period of time. From a Western. Yeah, exactly. And I, I agree with that. There was a sophistication to it, especially with Bruder's character, John Bruder. He's a character I wanted to talk about because his character development is one of the specific things that interested me about the first half of the movie. And then it had its own little climax during the last half that I really liked. No, I I did too. He was one of my favorite characters. I mean, all of them have their own moments. And I think the character development between the four of them is what makes the movie the movie. Well. That's why when I was describing it, I described it as like a lawful good character or a lawful neutral character, because the first half of this movie, I almost exactly saw as like a D&D campaign. And the example I give is when Bruner shot the Mexicans. Because he does it all willy nilly. There is no rhyme or reason. Well, Well, to him there is, but at the time, all that they're doing is lighting matches. They've thrown their guns. They're doing everything that Sheriff Hutt is asking them because Hutt and Bruner have their guns pointed at him and all of a sudden Bruner just starts blasting. Yeah, exactly. And to me that feels like a D&D campaign because I play D&D with my friends and we have very different play styles because my character is usually lawful good. So like Sheriff Hunt style and he's like, oh, what the fuck? Why would you kill them? And then other people in our party are playing chaotic characters. So they're like, oh, Red is dead. He was They were potentially bad guys, so I killed him. And it shows how they're willing to concede to each other. And to me, that just makes it seem really realistic. It makes the characters feel alive. Well, did you ever notice how he was always on the outside? Even with everything, the three of them put their bunks, their sleeping quarters, whatever you want to call it, together, and he was always on the opposite side, no matter what. Even though he was the one that was setting up a tripwire around camp, saying, if you hear anything, start shooting. I'm not going to be the one that saves you. And then when he just, when that first tripwire happens from the coyote, and he just immediately sits up and pops it, was one of the funniest things ever. Oh, yeah, because he was adamant about how he was going to be first, and Chickory was like, you shouldn't disrespect Sheriff Hunt like that. He's like, don't, uh, what what, what does he say? Don't rely on me to save you. And then ends up being the one that just, bam. Instantly. Instant. Like, it's it's just a knee-jerk reaction. He sits up and starts shooting in that direction. And even, even Chickory's character is the dumb character, I guess. He's he's dumb but loyal is how he's portrayed. And it you can see that immediately with him at the very beginning stumbling into the sheriff's office. Because what is he, the uh, deputy sheriff? The assistant deputy sheriff. Yeah. And he's, you know, it's the duty of the of the assistant deputy to place the stones. It's the And says that all the time. But you can see him stumbling in and trying to catch his breath and saying... I was visiting my wife's grave, and there's a stranger, and is that tea? No, it's not tea. Okay, well, now I know it's not tea, I'll have some. And then he's like, 
what is it? He goes, I think it's like carrot soup or something is what he corn. said. It was uh, corn. corn chowder. Corn chowder. That's what it was. And he goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense now. It tastes like that. Okay. And just his whole, his like, he's a good guy. He's probably the one that has the most moral qualms with Bruder shooting the Mexicans. He's very, very much in, why did you do that? why and then when he goes and investigates the body and sees that one of them has a crucifix on he's even more pissed at at Bruder for it yeah why did you shoot a man of god basically right and that shows the difference in the morals of the characters and the fact that it was continuously brought up by chicory after that like i'm pretty sure even when they're in the cages at the end right before sheriff hunt dies or gets taken out He's like, I really wish he hadn't killed the Mexicans. I don't know that they were bad guys. And well, he's stuck like, on yeah, it. Yeah, I didn't know either. Yeah, he gets stuck on it. Like he's one hundred percent stuck on it and doesn't and even even O'Dwyer gets stuck on it during his thing where his where they have to basically amputate his leg, but he's saying don't the the shift. And he's saying, No, that's my choice. You're not taking my leg. What would have happened? If you hadn't have got my wife involved, when because Bruder was the one that got Samantha involved in it, since Sheriff Hutt, you know, shot the guy in the foot, which was a little bit excessive. I mean, was it? It was just David Arquette. I mean, I know it was David Arquette, but David Arquette was apparently a really bad murderer. He's the reason the troglodytes came. In the perfect world, he wouldn't have shot him in the foot, and he would have just let him go on his way. But then we wouldn't have gotten this movie. Yeah, his name is Purvis, by the way. Purvis. Purvis. Oh, yeah. the, David Arquette. Yeah, David Arquette's character was Purvis. I he thought it was his, Buddy. Yeah, he thought it was Buddy, but it took you a while to come to that name, didn't it? Yeah. His whole interrogation, I thought, was interesting too. And then there is O'Dwyer, who was the moral, upstanding man that basically only gets into this one and really wants to continue. And I don't think he wants to continue because he loves his wife. I think that he wants to continue because he thinks that Bruder is going to try to steal her from him. I think that what it is is the way that he sees it. Because Bruder has a thing for Samantha because he finds that letter that he wrote her saying, you know, I've been thinking about you. I dream about you. Sometimes I envision us together and it, pisses him off and he keeps it because he finds it while he's packing and carries that the whole way that's not the letter he brings i thought that was the letter he brought no the letter that that arthur brought was the one that he wrote samantha because samantha was trying to get him to read it to her and he was like oh no i'm not going to read it it feels stupid coming out of my mouth the poetry thing exactly and then once he leaves he grabs it and says don't worry i'll be reading it to you real soon okay and then he never does. That we know of. That's why. That's my issue with the ending. The ending. We'll it, save it. We'll we'll talk about it in that part. Save it. But I think when you put him up against Bruder, who comes off as a more sophisticated, brash, arrogant, intelligent man compared to the two, he feels intimidated by him because Bruder did did say that he was trying to get with him. Did try to get with Samantha. But she rejected him. 
but why is he going? Is he going because of a guilty conscience, or is it because he thinks that he can win her over by showing up as the knight in shining armor, so to speak? No, he's going for vengeance because he hates native people. Yeah, he hates, like, absolutely hates them because they slaughtered his family. Yeah, they. he says that they killed his mother and sisters. And that's why he has this vendetta against them. He takes he takes great pride in what he does. Oh, yeah. And, and so, speaking of that, I thought it was really interesting with the abduction scene, how they have they find an arrow that's been made, and the first thing that they say is, oh, Indians got him. And they bring the native, the local native man who knows exactly what it is, and he goes, those are not Indians. Those are not my people. You can't lump us all together. These are cave-dwelling, incestual people that will have sex with their mother and then eat her afterwards. These are the troglodytes. They are not they're not us. Do not lump us in that group together because these are not like basically they're subhuman yeah. at this point. We're people, they're not. And I think that that was very interesting because I think that they Bruder treats them all the same because he's racist obviously towards native people. Yeah. But I think the others treat him a little bit differently because after they see I, I think though they will treat him differently because they definitely treated the troglodytes different compared to normal natives because these people are not people at all which we'll get to why they're not people in the second half of this would you consider them people yeah i think so okay because i wouldn't i would definitely not consider them people at all i mean they're Definitely different because of the weird neck thing, but I don't know if that's a bone or if it's something that is implanted in them when they're young. Like, if it explained exactly what it was better or showed it better, because at one point you see Arthur cutting out the troglodytes. Oh, we'll get there. Getting a little too... You you asked me if I thought they were people. I was trying to qualify my answer. could have just said yes or no. It was a yes or no. Do you think that they're people? Yes or no? I'm not sure. I would okay. imagine yes, probably. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Put it on the back burner. And then the uh, one scene that I do want to talk about, what, what's your favorite scene in the first half? I really like the scene where he's talking to Buddy Purvis before he shoots him when he's at the bar because he's like, I ain't done nothing. And Oh, yeah. Sheriff Hunt is just being really insistent with, oh, I never said you'd committed a crime. Why are you talking about crime now? And the way he was like leading his dialogue I thought was really interesting and fun. So mine's a dialogue scene. And it's the one that I showed you before we started where they're talking about the book. Reading in the bathtub? Yeah, can you, Sheriff Hunt, can you read in the bath? That scene right there is amazing. Because I think that it's character development at its finest. It's pointless and stupid, but it's it's good. It shows like the wholesomeness of uh, chittery, chicory, chicory. Is it chicory? Yeah. Did I write that down wrong? No, I did. I don't know why I said chittery. I wrote it down as chicory. I don't even know why they call him that. They it call him name. No, it's not because they call him something else, and he goes, "Call me chicory." I forgot what they, what he calls him because Arthur calls him that one time and he goes, nah, call me Chicker. So my wife always called me. Oh, I thought that was imbecile. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. 
That was a good line too. That was so funny. There were funny moments in this, but I think I think that's funny in its own way because they're sitting there and he goes, "Hey Sheriff Hood, I don't think that Mr. Bruder could have thought of that. You're smarter than he is. He wouldn't have come up with that one." But it's also showing that loyal allegiance to Sheriff Hutt because he thinks that he's kind of the greatest thing to ever walk the earth. If I was to describe Chickory's character to someone who had never seen this movie, I would say that imagine Sheriff Hunt as someone who owns a golden retriever that's (laughs) old and decrepit and kind of like beyond its good years, but it's super loyal and loving still, and that's Chickory. Chickory is is Sheriff Hunt's golden retriever. He's a good boy. Who is 100% past his prime. Yeah. And is on knocking on death's door. But he's a good boy. But he is a good boy. He t- he survives a surprising amount of arrows and uh, disaster and pain and suffering, though. Well, he has to. He's a good boy. <laughs> he's got to get home. That's fair. You want to talk about the second half now? I'm down. Down for it? All right, I'm, I'm down to clown. Because this is where it shifts, the, the tonal shift into what was a really good character development story between these four men who are bound by their duty technically well some of them are bound by duty some of them are bound by vengeance one is bound by vengeance (laughs) potentially two potentially two because i think i think o'dwyer wants vengeance on him for taking his wife i think arthur thinks his wife is probably dead Oh no, I guarantee it. He's he's hoping for the best and preparing for the worst, I believe. Yes. And he's determined to get there, but he's kind of slowing down because he's broken his tibia from falling off the roof after she told him not to get up there. Not while it's storming. Not while it's storming, but you're too hard-headed. And oh, that was good. I think that's a metaphor for him being too hard-headed to stay in bed once he finds out she's been kidnapped. I think that's foreshadowing. I think it's foreshadowing for him being too hard-headed to not amputate his leg because gangrene was a huge thing back then. I think had he amputated his leg, he probably wouldn't have been able to make it. I don't think so either, but he was barely able to make it. He just took a lot of opium. Hey, opium's a hell of a drug. (laughs) Took way too much opium. So did those troglodytes. That was funny. But the the reason I like that so much is because of the way that she says the one with the bones will be out for a while. He'll be out for a good long while. The second one will die. And the third one, it will have no effect on. That's another scene that made me think it was D&D. She's like the dungeon master and they rolled for, you know, deception and you know, poisoning, and then she's relaying what happened based on their role. You know what I mean? Like, this this whole movie feels super d and I don't know if that's intentional or if I just had D&D on the mind when I was watching it. You had D&D on the mind because I don't think this was anything like D&D. The, the way she said that, because that's exactly how your dungeon master reads it when you attack somebody in... D&D. They're like, oh, this is the effect to add on this person. This is the effect to add on this person. This is the effect to add on this person. Well, yeah, but she's saying the effect based off of how much they drank. Yeah, the effect off of how high they rolled. The, you just had D&D <laughs> on the mind. <laughs> and I, I do want to preface this by saying the whole reason that this is in, like, the whole reason this movie takes place is because Purvis knocked over 
a burial site and desecrated it with Buddy. And then they followed him back to Bright Hope. Yeah, because he because it makes a point to show that he knocks over the stones and the skull, right? Yeah. Like he desecrated their burial. But he doesn't around. do it with Buddy. He is Buddy. No, he's not. Buddy is Sid Haig. Is he? Did they yeah. officially get know that that was his name? He says in the very beginning of the movie, he calls him Buddy. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's his character's name is Buddy. Right. I re- I I hear that now. However, it, when I saw it in the movie, I thought he was just calling him, "Hey, Buddy." You also thought that it was eleven days earlier. I was really confused for the first like three fourths of this movie because I thought him knocking over the uh, grave happened after they were kidnapped. I thought that that was them escaping, getting kidnapped after I found out he was kidnapped too, up until the end when they found Samantha and she was like, oh, that guy? Yeah, he got eight. I was like, oh, I was like, everything makes so much more sense now. I was so confused. Oh, I know you were. You were confused when you came over and we had to watch that first part. And you're like, oh, later, I agree. I think I wrote it down as earlier. I, I did write it down as earlier. And that's why when I was checking my notes at the end of the movie, I was so confused because I was like, I don't understand how all of this happened before the end if he was already dead. I'm stupid. It's okay. You're an idiot, and that's why we do this podcast. Yeah, exactly. But he does that, and then what ends up happening is they come and they find where he's locked up and capture Deputy Nick, played by Evan, not going to attempt to pronounce that last name, Samantha, and Purvis. They really want Purvis, but the other two are just casualties of war. So it's like, who cares? And when more they people to eat. more people, yeah, because they're cave dwelling troglodytes, troglodytes, which is unnecessary because troglodyte literally means cave dweller. Is it? Yeah, I'm gonna look it up. A troglodyte is a hermit or a person who is regarded as being deliberately ignorant or old fashioned. Okay, now read the other definition. That 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 is, yeah, that. When you Google it, the Oxford Dictionary, troglodyte, especially in prehistoric times, a person who lived in a cave, a hermit, a person who is regarded as being deliberately ignorant or old-fashioned. Okay, so see, that time you read it, you read the first definition, though. The first time you read it, you didn't read a person who lived in a cave. Like a hermit. A hermit lives in a cave. Not a hermit is a troglodyte. A hermit could also be someone who lives in a cabin in the woods by themselves. In the wise words of the rock, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but they go and find, they finally find them. And I just want to say that when they come across their hole in the side of the mountain, in the valley, the death of Bruder was really really gory there are some really gory scenes in this movie there were but that wasn't one of them compared to the rest of the film yeah well i mean that was the start of it though like compared to what had happened previously nothing was really because even the disembowelment of the stable boy wasn't that bad no but you see his hand get chopped off it still wasn't that bad i like how he said you're gonna have to kill me because i'm too vain to live as a cripple. Yeah. He's like, I don't I don't want to do that. I lost my hand. Give me a cigar and I'm going to blow this motherfucker up. And then he doesn't. No, it's really disappointing to me that he was unable to use the dynamite successfully because he was one of my favorite characters as well. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought his last stand, especially with the motivation that he had, because this was his vengeance quest. Because he was, killed 161. Yeah, exactly. I was hoping his vengeance would like be more successful instead of him just kind of whimpering out with the first one that came at him sideways. But it's also showing how he was blinded by vengeance towards the native people as a whole. Because he didn't, because he grouped them all together. In his words, an Indian's an Indian, right? Yeah. Didn't care that these were subhuman, not at all native. They're all the same to him. Although these are just, you know, going to kill you with their bone tomahawks. I see what you did there. (laughs) But I thought his death was, it was noble, but it started a roller coaster of emotions. It's sort of a roller coaster of death. I don't know if I would say emotions because when they got all kidnapped, I didn't really care. Why? All that character building beforehand in the first half of the movie? The characters that I the characters that I expected to live were Patrick Patrick Wilson or Arthur and Sheriff Hunt were the only two characters I expected to potentially make it out. So when Bruner died, I was like, Oh, cool i was like that's kind of what i expected and then i assumed the old man would die as well chicory but i wasn't i wasn't super nervous about them dying because i assumed patrick wilson would still show up and save them you thought patrick wilson was gonna limp in i thought he was gonna do exactly what he did i just thought he was gonna do it before sheriff hunt got got dead and the reason he got dead was because he tricked him See, I don't think Patrick Wilson would have been able to make it had he not tricked him with morphine or opium. Whiskey. It was opium. Isn't isn't morphine a type of opium though? Yeah, but morphine came later. That's fair. But with his opium whiskey, it was yeah, which wasn't even whiskey. It was just opium. I thought there was whiskey in there as well. No, it doesn't matter. It yeah, it does matter because it was straight opium, brother. Okay. Yeah. It, no, it doesn't matter. But he, I agree, if he hadn't have slowed them down with that, there was no way he was going to make it in time. They all would have died. Pretty likely. Well, because Purvis is dead, and then by the time that they get there, Deputy Nick is getting witch-boned. Yeah. So I do want to say that the reason this was only a $2 million movie was because Zoller did not want to cut anything so this was actually the first script of the movie because most of the time they'll give a script and they'll go through rewrites they'll cut out scenes and stuff first draft is what they filmed the movie for damn yeah and it was also shot in 21 days fun fact but because he wouldn't compromise on certain scenes the studio was like yeah we're gonna lower your budget and not give you as much money so you're probably thinking that the wishbone scene was one of them right no they didn't care they were like, that's fine, even though that's the one scene that everybody talks about in this movie, is the wishbone scene. I mean, it's the only scene that I would call, like, super graphic in this movie. Because yeah. even when Sheriff Hunt gets his fingers cut off, or when he gets his stomach sliced open and the flask put inside his wound, it sucks and it looks like it hurts, but nothing is even remotely as graphic as the wishbone scene. Yeah, because that was straight up not having a good time. Yeah, and then his entrails fell out. Like, it was super badass. I think it was an awesome kill. 
but that's the only kill in this movie that I was just like, oh shit, when it was happening. Everything else was like, mm, it's so, it's not that graphic, it's not that bad. But that scene was like, oh. And then when his entrails fell out, I was like, oh, okay. But it, it was also really good because it shows the brutality of these people. Like these troglodytes. These troglodytes, yeah, they're not people. <laughs> and it shows their brutality because they scalp him and then insert a wooden peg and his scalp into his mouth. They like hammer it in and then flip him upside down while he's barely clinging on to life because I think it goes through like the back of his head when they nail it through or whatever. I couldn't say. I I mean, it doesn't matter because he gets wishbone. So they start hacking at his genitals and when he's cut deep enough, they just rip him apart. And you would think that that scene was one of the reasons why this movie didn't get a low, got a low budget, but it wasn't. The scene that got them the low budget that he refused to cut was the bathtub scene. Was it talking about reading in the reading in the bath? Why? Because it doesn't move the plot forward and is unnecessary. Like it is an unnecessary. Like in their in the eyes of the studio, that scene was just a waste of money because it does not move the plot forward. There is no reason for you to shoot it. It does not do anything. Cut it. It is character development and character development is very important if but you want it doesn't people, move the plot forward right but if you want people to talk about your movie positively eight years later it can't just be useless plot progression for characters you don't care about no i agree and that's why he took a stand on it and said no i'm not doing that like i'm not going to cut it because this is this is my movie this is my film this is what i wrote these are the characters being flushed out yeah. This is something that they would have. And it was very, very funny to me that that was the one that they had a problem with and that the wishbone scene was like, eh, it's okay. See, I, 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 I can understand that because the wishbone scene is something super graphic. And if it's something super graphic, people are going to talk about that. But most people probably aren't going to talk about the bathtub scene other than you because, you know, we like dialogue. Yeah, I like dialogue and it was funny. But you're not going to see a article on IMDb or whatever website does articles saying controversial scene, old man asks other old man about bathtub and movie. About reading in a bathtub. Yeah, it's going to be, oh, this movie has, shows a scene where a guy and you see his front nudi- frontal nudity and back nudity and then you get to see his entrails when he gets cut in half. Like, that could be an article. You could screenshot that and have that as your thumbnail. And people would click on it just because they'd be like, oh, that looks brutal as fuck. Which is what happened, because a lot of people just clip the wishbone scene. Like, if you Google wishbone scene, it pops up. Yeah, but if you Google bathtub scene or scene regarding reading and tub, I it probably is less likely to pop up because it's less likely that people are going to want to show other people but for people who watch the movie the that scene's important because it shows character development for people who want to write articles about the movie or people who want there to be something shocking in the movie that they can use for promotional stuff then they're going to want they're going to prefer the wishbone scene right because it's a money-making deal yeah like i get it i thought it was interesting no I, it is but i wouldn't expect them to cut the wishbone scene like i think that even if he had said oh no i think it's like a little gratuitous They'd have been like, oh, no, we like that. That's a great scene. You ought to keep that in there. Well, I, th- I don't think they would have cut it. They would have asked him to dial it down 
because you could have done the wishbone scene and shot it completely different. You could have took what I call the Texas Chainsaw approach to it and showed the reaction of Sheriff Hutt while he was being butchered. You can hear everything. You can hear the the cutting noises. You can hear the screams, the grunting, everything. Maybe and even hear see the, the shadow. Yeah, you can see the shadow of everything. Like There are ways to shoot it. And then you can see this horrified expression on Hutt's face as he's watching the whole thing. And it would have been fine. It still would have been talked about because people would have been, oh my God, what's going on? Like, that looks horrible and we didn't even see it. Because even if you see the shadow of it, you still see a man get ripped in half. But it's not as graphic. Not nearly as graphic. So I could see them trying to dial that down for rating purposes and being like, yeah, you can't do that. If this was a adults-only movie... Then I could see that happening, but because it was just rated R, like, you know, it's not NC-17, bro. No, it's not NC-17. It's not NC-17 at all. It's unrated. Is it unrated? No, it's rated R. Okay, that's what I thought. The death of Sheriff Hutt, I really enjoyed, though. It was badass. He's a tough motherfucker. No, he's a a badass, because he's like, how many are there? Because even before he died, he was asking how many are there who am i gonna have to kill and then counting it up and being like okay so there's 12 and then two females which the female part was fucked up i am disappointed that they didn't kill her what do you mean when they were leaving and it was samantha chicory and arthur and they walked past the clearly pregnant unable to be moved, bound to the table, already known to be blind, you know, woman. Like, I feel like they should have just killed her. There were two of them. I feel like they should have just killed them. No, because nothing was going to happen. And I think that it was probably because they were so upset with everything that it was just a cruel death that they could do. Because they're going to starve to death. Like, nothing is going to happen. No, I know. That's why I think he should have just killed him. Like a mercy kill is what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Because in my mind, Chicory's a good wrong. guy and Arthur's a good guy. They would be the, the good character, yeah. Well, so is Samantha. I mean, well, yeah, but I wouldn't consider her part of the main party since she didn't do the adventure with him. No. But, she was the princess. Yeah, exactly. But I would consider both of them morally good characters. And for me, Mercy is really high on the morally good list of things to have. And to me, it would have been merciful for them to kill him. And I recognize that they were when earlier in the movie when John was talking about how he killed women and children historically. And Chicory said, oh, I could never kill a woman or a child. And this would be both. Right. So I recognize that from their character standpoints, it might be beyond what they would normally do. But I think in these circumstances, they recognize that they will definitely starve to death because they've wiped them out and that it would be the right thing to do. Well, almost wiped them out. There's still three left, but they're pretty confident that Sheriff Hunt or them are going to run into them and finish them off because that's why Owen Wilson keeps their whistle. Well, and I think that's why it's not... Or Owen Wilson. Wilson. I'm sorry. Fucking Patrick. Patrick Wilson. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> call him O'Dwyer. This is O'Dwyer. why we don't call... Arthur. Arthur. Yeah, this is why we call him by their character names, not actor names. I've been doing a little bit of both. I've been switched in between them based on whichever one's popping in my dome piece first, bro. Yeah, and you put Owen Wilson in there. He wasn't even in the movie. 
They're and both I, Wilson and they're both white guys. It's hard for me to tell white guys with the same last name apart. I'm sorry. Obviously. No, I think the reason he doesn't kill them is because he wants to conserve his ammo because he's running low on it and now he really needs to protect his wife. And that's why that's why Chickory brings over the rock. Oh, I know. He picks it up because if I don't have a weapon, I'm going to grab a rock. Yeah, and he's going to bust it on your ass. What is it? If I don't have a weapon, I'm going to pick up a rock and when I bust your ass I'll get, you better get ready to rock something like that something like that i don't even know what song that is i don't fucking know either but it's that's what you're quoting song. yeah yeah interesting i'm gonna google it real quick hold on oh yeah it's uh it's the eminem song yeah um we can cut that no no we need to leave it in there's the fuck it doesn't shake that it doesn't matter. Anyway, when he picks up a rock and then busts his ass. <laughs> he doesn't he, do anything with the rock. He just carries it for like 100 yards and then tosses it. Well, he tosses it when he hears the gunshots because he knows that Hut has succeeded. Because you hear the two and then there's a pause and then a third one. He's like, I got him. Did he? Or yeah. did he Did he maybe get one of them and then miss? It doesn't show. We don't know. No, because Hut's a badass. Chicory dropped that rock because he didn't need it anymore because he knew that Sheriff Hutt was going to say hello to his wife in heaven after he took all these motherfuckers to hell. See, I don't know that that's how it works. That is how it works. I don't know. It doesn't show it. Like, I don't even know that they made it home. Like, Arthur, Samantha, Chicory, they could have all died for all I know. So you're a whole beef with this is the uncertainty because it leaves it open-ended right yeah exactly that's why i love the ending i normally like movies that end open endings with open endings however the open ending in this felt bad i didn't feel good about it why i felt like i just felt like there should have been more i felt like there should have been additional dialogue or something because i felt empty when it was over instead of like feeling that satisfaction of a story coming to at least enough of a conclusion for me to say what happens because i don't even know that they're for sure all dead it doesn't matter they could still be being pursued they could not make it back yeah, but that's up for you to decide. That's how, how does it end for you? Do they make it back? Do they run into bandits? Do natives come and kill them? Do they run into another group of Mexicans who are going to rob them and steal their shit? Uh, like, what happens? Do they, what do they run into the one troglodyte that's following them and seeking vengeance where they're 13, not 12? Yeah, do, does Owen, will, or, <laughs> see, this is, does Arthur decide to play with his, with his troglodyte whistle and accidentally summon more. Yeah. Like how many are there? But that's why I like it. It was because it's open-ended and left it up for you to decide. Would you want to do that cliche line of let's go home and then they walk off into the sunset? No. Is that what you wanted? Was that the closure you needed? No, because even then that wouldn't have been enough. Let's go home, baby. I would have liked the ending to be them back at home showing a funeral for those they've lost. No. Or... Or it showing a troglodyte like in a tree or in the mountains slowly following him. Would have ruined it. I think the ending was fine. No, I mean, and you're okay having that opinion? No, ending it, it into the way that it should have. If you had to put anything else on there, it would have been unnecessary. 
that's a legitimate opinion to have. I'm just saying for me, the ending didn't slap as hard as I'd hoped it would. The ending made me a little sad instead of making me stoked. Okay. It felt like a cop-out ending. I know it wasn't. It's supposed to be open. I know it wasn't open because he didn't know how to end it. I recognize all of that. It didn't feel good to me, though. That's all I'm saying. And I respect that. Did you know that uh, Quentin Tarantino was at the premiere of this movie? I did not. Because it came out in the same year as Hateful Eight. Kurt Russell was has the same beard in both movies, ironically enough. But it wrapped up production where he was able to do both of them. And he has been compared to like the modern Tarantino, which he takes that as, you know, thank you, I enjoy Tarantino a lot. He also came out and said that he enjoyed Kurt Russell's performance in his movie more than in the 8-point, which is interesting because I think that he probably did better in this one than he did in the hateful eight i would say so but i think that he did phenomenal in the hateful eight too and i think the reason he did more and better the reason he did better in this one is because it was a passion project for him because he's been doing it for so long so he really put forth a lot more effort than he did which not that's not to say that he didn't put effort into hateful eight he just put in a lot more effort because he's been working on this since 2007 yeah so what do you what do you think about his performance Compared to Hateful Eight? Uh, It's hard to say. I haven't seen Hateful Eight in a few years. I know that we watched it together on Christmas in like 2015 or something. We did. It was a very, very special moment. Yeah, it was an 18 millimeter. 70. (laughs) Instead of the 35, it was 70 and beautiful and it was the road show. Oh, it doesn't matter. That ruined movies for me. Like I just want you to know that watching it in seventy millimeter has ruined the viewing experiences for me. Seventeen point five millimeter. Shut up. <laughs> Stop talking. But no, he had a good performance in both. It's hard to say which was better because it's been a long time since I've seen Hateful Eight. But based on my memory of it, he did really, really good in that. So I don't know. I think, I think he's a great actor. I think so too. I think that everything that he does is good. I'm not going to say everything because I don't know if I've seen everything, but most of it has been pretty solid. Well, I can't say that with a straight face because I hate Death Proof, so. Really? Uh, Yeah, but we'll get into that later. That's a different topic. Different topic for a different episode. For a different episode. Was there anything else you want to talk about this movie? Not super specifically. I feel like we covered everything because the last half is just brutality and violence, really. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty fun. It's it was a it was a jolly good time. The in depth stuff is more in the beginning. Yeah. But with that being said, you want to go into the Taylor talk? Yeah. What do you got for the Taylor talk today, Taylor? Well, Taylor talk. I think we're just gonna have some free talk. We'll oh. uh, we'll talk about some life updates and kind of we'll we'll make it short. Don't want to draw it out. Oh, I mean, I'm not stressed about time. Well, I don't want to bore people with my life. Oh. But I think tell me your life story. No. I know there's just some changes going on, and I think that. We're going to start doing more on social media with the podcast, try to promote it a little bit better. Okay. Get out there and tell people about it, see if we can make people aware of what's going on, the awesomeness that is Two Idiots, One Podcast. Two Idiots, One Poopcast? Yeah, see, when you say it like that, no. (laughs) Bring the mic a little closer to you. It's because we're just talking shit. Oh, yeah. 
But no, I think we we need to market more. And I, I believe that if we got a team together, that would be good. So if you want to be a part of the Two Idiots One Podcast team, reach out to us at Two Idiots One Podcast Twenty Twenty Two at Gmail dot com. Are we gonna are we gonna start are we gonna do a heist? We are gonna do a heist. We're putting a team together. What what kind of heist are we gonna do? Well, we need eleven people. And I was thinking that we could rob a casino. What one did you have in mind? I don't know. I haven't figured that one out yet, but we gotta assemble the team first. Well, once we assemble the team and we have all of the plans together, we'll post them on social media so that you guys can follow our adventure. That's <laughs> not how that movie worked at all, but okay. <sighs> what what's going on with you? What do you have any life updates? Not super specifically. I've just been doing my thing. You got a license finally. Well, I've had a license. I got my license updated to Oklahoma. Yeah, you got a license finally. Once again, had a license. No, the DMV is stupid. Um, the DMV, our local DMV, is open from eight till four forty-five p.m. And they are walk-in only. They don't do scheduled appointments, and they don't accept walk-ins after eight thirty in the morning. So, if you're not there early enough to get into the building by 8.30, even though they're open till 4.45, you can't get a walk-in appointment at a walk-in only appointment place, even though it's going to be open for, you know, about eight and a half more hours. And that, to me, is a mind-boggling thing, and someone should do something about it like from a government perspective, like the Department of Transportation or something should get involved because it's not right for people to be treated like that, in my opinion. Because I got in there, I got there at 7 because I was told that if I didn't get there at least an hour before they opened, the likelihood of me being seen would drop. And I got there at 7. I was still like the 50th person in line, and I didn't leave until about 12.45. So I was there for five hours and 45 minutes. And to me, that's very unreasonable of them. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I don't, I don't, I don't specifically care. You were just asking me about my week and I was. No, you do care. You got super emotional with that. That wasn't emotional. I was just, I was just telling people about my life. That's okay. I think (laughs) it was a little emotional. No, my, uh, I got a new job. So hopefully I can have some more free time be able to dedicate it to this podcast and growing it. We got some big plans in 2023, and I think this is the year of us, not the movie. That was 2019. That was 2019, yeah. No, not 2023. 2023 was Scream 6. Do you have any desire to see that? Yeah. Are we going to review it? Do you want that to be the next episode? I don't know about all that, but yeah. What do you want the next episode to be? you want to give the viewers a little sneak peek if they've made it this far? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't I don't have any idea what movie we should do next week. That's okay. I like to I like to let my thoughts simmer for a bit so I can think about it. Today is Thursday. He'll know about Saturday. Yeah, by Saturday I should be texting you going, Oh, it would be really cool if we were to do some obscure movie nobody's heard of and cares to see. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. But with that being said, I think that's an episode. Yep, this has been Two Idiots, One Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you have a super jolly good one. I've been Bailey. And I've been Taylor. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.